When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, and, uh, well, Snooker's capacity to deliver great finals continues. We've had another one. Uh, Judd Trump from 7-3 down beat Zhang Ander to win the English Open. Um, terrific match. Zhang played so well to lead, but he missed one ball in frame 11, a blue. It wasn't a sitter by any means. He was slightly hampered. It was a sort of thinnish cut to the middle. But there's no doubt the whole match changed from there. He grew nervous, you could tell. And this was the first time all day you could tell that he was in his first final. And Trump fought hard, and it was a great battling win for him. You know, so often we talk about his flair and his flamboyance and his shot-making, and we should do, because his inventive play is wonderful to watch. But sometimes you've just got to roll up your sleeves, metaphorically. Uh, you don't want to breach the dress code. Uh, metaphorically roll up your sleeves and just battle. And that's what he did. And at times it was kind of Selby-esque. It was, you know, up there with the, the great players. Because the comeback against Higgins was very different. Jo- John Higgins in the semis, he threw everything at John, potted everything, big breaks, sort of steamrolled at him. This was a little bit different. And I thought it was very, very impressive. And it ends, I call it a drought, but uh, it's just a period without a ranking title, 19 months. Now, from 2018... Over three seasons, he won 14 ranking events. So he was so used to winning and we were used to seeing him win. It did dry up a bit. And 19 months since he won the Turkish Masters to the English Open seems a long time. But you just get the feeling now he's won one in early season. It's kind of put that to bed and I'm sure we'll see him winning many more. It was a terrific display. Uh, great week, actually. Another it's, These Home Nations events, they follow a very similar pattern. You know, you're sort of racing through the best of sevens, a lot of matches to get played, quite a few late nights. You get to the Friday and you look around who's left in the tournament who could win it. And obviously Higgins and Trump were on a collision course for the semis. Um, another close match that John's lost from in front. But he, I don't think you could say he threw it away. He did have a chance to win 6-2. He played a poor positional shot to the yellow and Judd Trump won that frame. And then he, he just turned it on. Higgins didn't really get a look in after that. And then, of course, the other semi-final... Two first timers, Zhang Ander, first turn pro 14 years ago, it was his first ranking semi final, and he played Lu Hong Yu in his first season on tour. He'd beaten the likes of Mark Williams and, of course, Ding Jun Wee. Um, he seemed a bit overawed by the occasion, I've got to say, which is understandable because he's <laughs> completely new to him, and Zhang won that. He had a great week. It was good to see him sort of finally really have a good run in the tournament, but it just shows, you know, the pressure does come down to bear when when it gets close and Trump is more used to handling that and a great win for him and uh, well of course we're straight into the next event the Wuhan Open is underway Uh, we've had the first day's play there four players have withdrawn we'll get onto that later Um, but uh, let's get to the emails this might be quite a short edition I think but uh, Matt Hewitt has written now Matt Hewitt many people will know works for the WPBSA formerly pro snooker blog rankings guru uh, and uh, Last year, last year, last week, I was celebrating, if that's the word, um, eight years of the podcast in a rather self-regarding fashion, it's got to be said. And that wasn't lost on various people. But anyway, Matt has written in 
He says, as the young people would say, long-time listener, first-time emailer. Although I do, although I always enjoy casual reference at the merest mention of the discussion of any world ranking list. Matt says that. He has been on the podcast, so he's not, not a complete stranger to it. He said, congratulations on the eight-year anniversary of the Snooker Scene podcast, which I've literally listened to across the world whilst working on tournaments in Australia and America in 2023. As it happens, another eight-year anniversary is almost upon us, as next month marks eight years since I joined the WPBSA. It still feels like yesterday since I was emailing you speculatively to ask how to attend qualifying tournaments circa 2008. Of course, the professional game is what first attracted me and many others to our great sport, but as you know, in recent years, I've become increasingly involved with the amateur game, and it's on this subject that I write. It's often said that the amateur game is dead, but in fact, we're now seeing that this is far from the case in 2023. For example, last month... On one single weekend within the WPBSA group alone, we either ran or were involved in the following events. Okay, player support program induction, which featured approximately 40 players from 15 countries. QTOR 2 in Sweden, 105 players from 25 countries. The the WDBS UK Disability Snooker Championship, 81 players from 7 countries across 8 classification events. Uh, World Billiards New Zealand Open. The EPSB Women's Open Series, nine players from three countries, a small event ahead of the Women's uh, UK Championship the following week, which attracted 45 entries from 11 countries. The World Seniors Qualifiers, that's 53 players from five countries. And the World Snooker Tour Shanghai Masters, where they were in charge of governance, drug testing and trophy presentation. At national level within England, we are seeing significantly increased entries across events for juniors, seniors and everything in between which is heartening to see. Indeed, from speaking to many players who've dropped off the professional tour and face a return to the amateur circuit to try to regain their place, many comment on how shocked they are by the high standard play and the volume of events, both domestically and internationally. I think it's important to shine a light on this trend, particularly as we were unable to run almost all amateur events for 18 months during the pandemic. Thankfully, this does not seem to have negatively affected people's desire to play our sport, if anything, the opposite. Here's to the next eight years. Well, thank you, Matt, and thank you for all the work you continue to do for our sport. And yes, it, it, it is worth shining a light on all of that because we do obviously massively focus not just on this podcast, but in general in the snooker world on the professional game because that is the you know that's like our Premier League, that is our our shop window really on television. But there is all this other snooker being played, and it's being played in the UK and around the world, and there's a lot of interest and a lot of participation. And as you say, you know the standards certainly in the amateur game is high things have changed snooker clubs have shut down you know there's no point pretending otherwise but there are places to play and clearly there is enthusiasm um and long may that continue now james cook our friend in america came in came in just under the wire for the fantasy quarterfinals it arrived shortly after i recorded last week we'll get on to that shortly he says i hope this finds you well we're in the thick of the season the british open just done the english open underway which is great, but once again, us international viewers are shortchanged. I can only watch these events via Matchroom Live and pay $5 a month to do so. While the pictures are provided, the commentary often isn't, diminishing the viewing experience. It came in and out during the British Open and is non-existent currently during the English Open. So as a result, I'm not watching it. It strikes me that with a large potential audience in the US and with the game largely unknown here, commentary would and should be provided. I realise it's no doubt due to contracts, etc., but as I pay for the service, I hope they can sort it out. Any thoughts, explanation? Well, I don't, uh, James, I don't know specifically what the issue is there. It sounds like it's probably a technical issue, uh, because I think, as far as I'm aware, 
I mean, we Eurosport, we commentate for Eurosport, but it's a world feed commentary, so it goes out to whoever takes that feed. So you should get it. It, it, it suggests that there's some technical issue, which hopefully in the future will be resolved. He says, gripe over with Napper, your request to name eight quarterfinal players to celebrate the podcast's eight, eighth birthday. Here's my dream lineup. Okay, so these are the matches we ask people to write in. What will your fantasy quarterfinals be? He's gone for Cliff Wilson v Tony Drago, Peak Ronnie v Peak Stephen. I assume that's Stephen Hendry. Uh, Mark Selby v Joe Davis, best of 65. Jimmy and Alex against Cliff Thorburn and Terry Griffiths. Obviously, this will take place in the Hofmeister doubles tournament. So did this pairing ever happen? Uh, I don't think Terry ever played with Cliff. Jimmy and Alex certainly played together. Terry partnered Dennis. Um, he may have partnered Neil Folds at one point, but um, I don't think he ever partnered Cliff. Uh, he says, bonus match, Paul Hunter v Tony Knowles. As for predictions, Tony Drago would beat Cliff Wilson. Stephen beats Ronnie. That's a controversial opinion, if I've ever heard one. Uh, Cliff and Terry outfox Jimmy and Alex, and Paul beats Tony Knowles. And he's got a, uh, he's brought his own joke here, and this is, it's a bit of an old one, this, uh, James, but as you're a regular correspondent, I will read it out. He said, what do you call a snooker player with a seagull on his head? The answer is Cliff. <laughs> I think a big theme this week will be scheduling, and, um, on this subject Brian McGovern has written in uh, he says I'm currently watching the match between Graham Dot and Barry Hawkins on Tuesday night this is the English Open last week uh, I'm just wondering did I see things when I saw Mark Selby concede in the last match when he could have won 20 behind with 27 on how was Mark Selby on twice today and Mark Williams wasn't could they not have had Mark Selby's match as the second match on table one I'm just thinking is the schedule too congested I'm thinking the English Open this week and the Wuhan Open next week. If players are in the final on Sunday, does it not give them a tight time frame to get out to Wuhan? Well, it does. I mean, we've had four players uh, withdraw from the Wuhan Open as we record this. Uh, Luca Brussel, Dave Gilbert, Graham Dot and Mark Williams. Now, as it happens, Mark Williams was due to play Zhang Ander, who, of course, was the runner-up in Brentwood at the English Open. So Zhang actually, because he's got a match fewer to play, that must help him. He, didn't, he still, you know, won't have much time to sort of get used to being back in China. But that, that, that's a help. Um, in terms of Mark, we'll get on to that in a minute. In terms of Mark Selby, he, he was in the British Open final on the Sunday. Uh, the English Open started the next day, and he was due to play on the Monday. And there's a, a rule that they, that match can be moved. I don't know if he was consulted or not, but the match was moved, which seemed a sensible decision. But obviously, then, you know, you've got seven matches to play. In six days, you can't play two on the Friday, Saturday, or Sunday quarters, semis, and, and finals. So it's going to have to be the Tuesday, the Wednesday, and the Thursday. Um, and it was the Tuesday for him. And yes, he played Martin O'Donnell, who, who's tough as old boots, of course. And he he was like you say, he missed the yellow. He could still win. Um, we well, left the yellow on, I should say. He could still win, um, but he he conceded. Now, as it as it he thought he'd left a sitter. As it turned out. It seemed a bit rash, but well, it was rash. You conceded early, but but actually the yellow he left, he was slightly hampered by the blue. I mean, he probably would have potted it. He needed the green as well, but we'll never know because he never um, got the chance to do it. For Mark Selby to concede early is very unusual. Obviously, it's probably the first time it's ever happened. I mean, he's known for never say die attitude, never give up. He was exhausted. It's not an ideal situation, um, but I'm not quite sure how what what could have been done really at some point. He was going to have to play twice. If you look at the World Championship, that whole last week, from the quarterfinals to the end of the final, which is seven days, 
the long matches. If you get to the final, you're playing most days twice a day, um, eight frame sessions. So it's, it's nothing he's not used to. I mean, he's renowned quite rightly as, a, as an absolute master in those matches. But obviously, what's different here is you have to factor in the disappointment of losing the British Open final. He wasn't coming to Brentwood with a song in his heart. He was coming there disappointed. And maybe that carried over as well. He did look tired in the match against O'Donnell. I mean, he's rubbing his eyes. So it wasn't kind of ideal for him. Um, We've got slightly on the same thing. Morgan Nock, he says, when the match schedule is roll-on, roll-off, how much notice do the players get that their match is due to start? Um... How are they given notice? What do the players do while they wait, given that they don't know when the match could start? Do they sit in the audience for a bit or stay out on the practice tables where available? Are they required or encouraged to remain in the venue while the prior match is ongoing? Well, on the match schedule, so, for example, the evening matches in the home nations, it's 7 o'clock, and then the next match on the schedule is not before 8. And the reason they put not before 8 is very unlikely to be 8, obviously, because someone would have to win in 45 minutes. But it's so the players are at the venue, so they know that's the earliest it could start, so you have to be there at 8 o'clock. Now, you might not get on until half past 10, so there is a lot hanging around. They tend to, yeah, they might do a bit of practice, but quite often they just sit around in in the players' room and just wait because there's no other option. Um, here's my solution, okay? I, we, I think it's important when you look at problems to actually try and find some solutions. In the specific case of the home nations, you have set times. So it's 10 o'clock, then it's 1 o'clock, not before 2, 7 o'clock, not before 8. That makes perfect sense on the main TV table for broadcasters. Does it have to be that on the outside tables? Could it be, you mentioned roll-on, roll-off, could it be actually that's the answer to stopping these late nights? Because, I mean, Mark Williams went on after 11 o'clock at night, which is too late to be starting a match. Could you not actually just make it roll-on, roll-off? So if the table, say, you play the first three matches, if the table's free at 6 o'clock, start at 6 o'clock. Don't wait till 7, and then, obviously, it gets later and later. The players would have to be there, but you could judge during the day. So if if a match goes on at, say... I don't know, half past two. There could be a two-hour rule there. We ring the players, OK, you're going to come on earliest half past four. You have to be here at half past four. Um, I think on those outside tables, obviously the glamour matches are on the main table, so the late nights are going to be on the other ones. Now, it may be that the set times are for streaming and international broadcasters who take the streaming, so there may be a reason why it's absolutely rigid, but... Actually, you don't know what time the match is going to start anyway, because obviously they're following the, the, the first one in that session. So maybe that's the answer to cutting out some of these late finishes um, on the on tables two, three, and four. Maybe it could be moved to a straightforward roll and roll off. I think the players would prefer that because they're less likely to be there late. Um, I put that forward as a suggestion. Whether whether it could be worked, uh, whether it's practical, I don't know. But. Um, the knock-on effect is we've had these withdrawals from Wuhan. I've got to say, though, you know, there's been a lot of discussion on this. The four players who've withdrawn, and we understand Judd Trump at the time of recording is going to play, the four players who withdrew could all have played. They could all have got there. Dave Gilbert lost on the first day uh, in Brentwood. Um, Graham Dot lost on the Wednesday. Uh, Luca Purcell lost on the Thursday. In fairness to Mark Williams, he lost in the early hours of Friday. Now, no reason has been given for withdrawals. They may be nothing to do with snooker. There may be in personal lives, things happening. I suspect with Mark, because he just won the British Open, he's got his big hit there, 100,000. Maybe he just doesn't feel he needs to go all that way to play another tournament. Luca Purcell I'm surprised about because he had a chance to be world number one. He hasn't sort of done that much in ranking events this season. He was in the final of the Shanghai Masters. That's an invitation event. 
but he hasn't um, yet done much in ranking events, so it could do with the points. He decided to sit it out. It's not like he's afraid of flying. That's not the reason, because he'd done a lot of that in the summer. Um, so there was a lot of talk about the scheduling, you know, sort of causing problems for the players. But overwhelmingly, the players have gone. And these four players could have gone. They could have got there in time to play their matches. They chose not to. That's up to them. Um, it's not ideal, obviously, to go straight from a tournament in Britain to straight to one in China. That, that's, that's self-evident. It's a long journey, a couple of flights... And a bit like with Mark Selby when with that match with Martin O'Donnell, you know, the players can physically get there, but we want them to be in condition to actually play well. You know, you can walk off a plane with your cue and start playing a match, but it doesn't mean you're going to hit prime performance, which is what we want to entertain us and to sell the sport. So, again, that's a problem. What's the solution? Well, I think there could potentially um, be one. Here's a question. Why does every event have to end on a Sunday? I think the reason is we've just become accustomed to that happening. Now, there are obvious reasons why that's a good thing. On a Sunday, fewer people work, so the audience will be higher, the TV audience will be higher. But it occurs to me if, if a big football match can be played on a Wednesday night, why can't a snooker final? Maybe if we start on a Thursday and end on a Wednesday, that could be a potential idea for some of these tournaments. Now, of course, again, broadcasters have to agree to that. You have to book the venue for that time. It's not just as simple as just saying that and it happening. But it's an idea... It would have given us a few more days in between English Open and Wuhan Open. Northern Ireland qualifiers next week would have to be put in another part of the calendar. Um, but that would just maybe alleviate it, right? Because I think the problem last week is all the discussion was, <laughs> seemed to be about how people were going to get to the next event rather than on the event they were playing in. There was so much talk about when you're flying and I've got to change my flight and all that. It occurs to me that wasn't sort of that positive for the event they're actually playing in. So maybe the answer is to look at, could we have a midweek finish? This did happen. It's not, um, it's not without precedence. Luca Brussel won the China Championship a few years ago, and that did finish midweek. Um, although I think, was a t- <laughs> I think it was a tournament that started in Germany the day after that, the Poland Classic. Um, but that's, again, you know, I don't think we just want to look at the problems. We want to come up with maybe a few solutions, and that's a potential one. Um, the other one... Alan McManus came up with in the Eurosport studio and he made a very compelling case and it was to actually go back to the tiered system so there were fewer matches because at the moment Ronnie O'Sullivan for example will have to win seven matches in Wuhan to win the tournament in the old system because that's the flat draw everyone's coming in round one the old system he'd come in in the last 32 and he'd have to win five matches and obviously that just means fewer matches to actually get through at the venue there is a feeling, certainly at the home nations, and a little bit with Wuhan, where they've got seven tables. You kind of, certainly in the early days, you're racing just to get the matches played. There's so many matches to get through. Maybe, and it's a good thing there are more tournaments, obviously, but maybe because there are more tournaments, it would make more sense to have fewer matches at the venue. You want the top players there, so what's the answer? Well, the answer is to go back to the tiered system. Um, World Snooker Tour under Barry Hearn introduced the flat draw. Barry was very much for it. And I think he is still for it, although he's not still the chairman. But it may be that in time, and hopefully we'll get more tournaments, it will be more practical to take fewer players and therefore not have this kind of fixture build-up where it's just hard to get to the actual tournaments to play. Um, so that's it. there are a couple of ideas, maybe a midweek finish, maybe have the tiered system, and then you wouldn't get the sort of the constant talk about you know how hard it is to get to the tournament 
Um, we'll get in a, in a few minutes to the big issue, really, of the week, which has come out today, which is the um, players potentially not going to Belfast. We'll get to that in due course. But first, Ken Byrne. He says, thank you for the work on the podcast. It's very insightful and humorous at times. Thank you, Ken. He says, Ronnie O'Sullivan is really getting on my nerves lately. There are two things in particular that irk me. Number one, fist bumps. The dark COVID days are behind us. Shake hands like a proper man. Two, fan acknowledgement. He typically just walks straight out of the arena after finishing a match without so much as a wave to the crowd. Now, he's not alone in this. Do these guys ever consider the fact that a fan may be attending their first ever snooker event? Or that perhaps the fan may only be attending this particular match or session? The one exception I've noticed to this is Sean Murphy, who consistently acknowledges the fans who watch his matches. As the saying goes, it's nice to be important, but more important to be nice. Clearly O'Sullivan doesn't subscribe. Well, very trenchant words there from Ken. Uh, on the first point, the fist bumping, he was doing pre-COVID, actually. That's not a COVID thing. He was doing that, I remember, um, before um, COVID, because he did it at the Scottish Open, and Mark Selby tried to sort of do rock, paper, scissors with him. <laughs> um so that's, uh, you know, that's just what he does. Uh, the fan acknowledgement, uh, well, I, I suppose everyone's different. I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know how far you want him to go on that, really. He, I think he does wave to the crowd. Uh, he, he did in, in uh, Wuhan today when he left. Um, the problem is, I guess, he, he just gets so much attention, you know, and it can be overwhelming, particularly in a, in a tournament environment where, you know, the pressure of the matches is, is, is pretty strong as well. I'm not defending Ronnie. I don't need to. He can defend himself. But, um, I'm sure a lot of people have had good interactions with him. Maybe some, not so much. Uh, let's go to Tim. Tim Southern. Southern, maybe. He says, not a massively insightful email. Well, that's fine, Tim. It's not a massively insightful podcast. Uh, he said, I just wanted to say, I can't believe World Snooker Tour have gone straight in and stolen the mundane meetings with Snooker Players concept you featured over a year ago now. You see, the completely shameless theft or done unknowingly, and they came upon it by chance. Uh, I hate to say it. Uh, well, I won't read that out, actually. <laughs> he says, uh, Will Snooker Tour trying hard to do the right thing? Podcast scoring, different marketing, but just keep dropping the ball early on. I'll continue to listen to their podcast as I like Mark Watson and follow his other work. Obviously, Hendry's a great signing. Let's see if they reference yourself or the Snooker Zoom podcast in the coming weeks. Well, I'm sure they won't. Here's the thing. That, that, yes, I, on the, that last episode, they did sort of bring that in but it's bring that up Monday meetings with snooker players we've done banal meetings with snooker players which is very very different word um, but it, it, the way they brought it up it was kind of in passing I don't think there was any great uh, plan and I'm sure it's a total coincidence because there's only so many ideas aren't there <laughs> um, I think the podcast is good actually I think Hendry is brilliant on it it's quite funny though for those journalists myself included who used to interview Stephen when he was playing at the top level if he lost, you could not get a word out of him. You know, it was, it was it was horrible for everyone involved trying to get him to speak. Now, you can't shut him up. He's on the podcast. He's got doing the Q-tips. Brilliant on the TV, um, which is all good. And he's, uh, he's also at that stage of his career and indeed his life where he's got nothing to prove. So he will be direct and say what he thinks. And uh, he's very entertaining. So, um, listen, if they want the joke section as well, they can have that. Because <laughs> increasingly nobody else wants it. Brian Murray from Dublin. He says, thanks for all your hard work in putting your show together. Thoroughly enjoyable. Thank you, Brian. He said, I've got a couple of not very important questions, if you don't mind. Firstly, while watching Trump and Zhang play the final, 
I observed that Zhang fairly regularly puts his chalk on the table when taking his shot. Most of the players only do this when stretching for a shot. Is there any rule regarding this, bearing in mind a build-up of chalk marks the table? Secondly, I saw a post on the World Snooker Tour site about Barry Pinches facing his son Luke at Q School. Not sure if it's an old or new post. In all the years I'm watching snooker, I can't remember too many matches where family members are playing against each other. I remember the Franciscos playing each other years ago, more recently uh, Mark Allen and Rianne Evans. Can you remember many? Well, on the first point, the chalk thing, I know that annoys a lot of people. Um, I can't say it bothers me that much. It's just sort of seen as poor etiquette, but, you know, the sky didn't fall in. Um, so, you know, it's just one of those things. Some people do it, most people don't. In the case of relatives playing each other, yeah, I think that was a few years ago. Barry actually beat his son, which <laughs> which seems harsh, but, you know, it's it's a tough game. Um, I suppose the other obvious one was, was Jeff and Neil Folds. They played each other in a tournament uh, years ago because they're both on the tour. And I know Neil has said it was a pretty horrible experience, particularly for Jeff. Obviously, he wanted his son, you know, at all times to win, and it was not a nice experience to have to play him. Um, there were two brothers, actually, in the two wildcards at Wuhan, not playing each other, but... Um, of course, Joe and Fred Davis would be the, I know they're not the TV era, but they were probably the most famous relatives in Snooker Brothers, and between them won 23 world titles. And uh, they reckon Fred was the only one to beat Joe off level terms. Um, so, a talented family, to say the least. Gareth Williams says, I just wanted to say congratulations on the podcast reaching its eight-year anniversary. I've listened for around four of those, and I've always been thoroughly entertained each week. Thank you for your dedication to it. I hope it continues for many years to come. Well, thank you, Gareth, for listening. He said at the end of last week's episode, upon hearing the traditional podcast saying goodbye-bye, it got me wondering, have you ever accidentally signed off with a goodbye-bye on Eurosport if a match has gone on too late? And you, if you, it's gone on late, you've had to conclude the TV coverage. Just a totally random thought which came into my head at the late hour I was listening, for which I can only apologise. Uh, no, I mean, this whole thing, goodbye-bye, it came from Phil Yates doing exactly that at the Championship League. He was he was, he was wrapping up the, the programme. And the thing about that is, you know, the, the, the listening to things in your ear, you're being counted down by the producer, director, whatever, and sometimes it can be a little chaotic. And Phil, in his mind, was stuck between saying either goodbye or bye-bye. And he ended up saying goodbye-bye. And at the time, I thought it was very funny, um... And I'm not letting him forget it, but uh, that, that's that's why we use it as our catchphrase. It's kind of a strange one, I know, but um, it was just funny because because <laughs> immediately he'd said it, he couldn't take it back. We were off air. He couldn't sort of retract it. Um, it was just there forever. Uh, now, Phil Spivey, uh, he says, a great tournament this week and a fantastic win for world champion Judd Trump who he describes here as the sorry as the 2024 world champion Judd Trump so Phil is uh, nailing his colours to the Trump mask as you said in commentary this could be the catalyst for another successful period for Judd with multiple titles on the way snooker never disappoints even a so-called less prestigious event contains brilliant entertainment and lots of great stories Zhang Anda was magnificent up to 7-3 and it's more evidence of the strength and depth on the tour that a player as good as him has only just made his first final I had some questions about stats you may be able to answer. Pot success. Does this include flukes, even when the fluke is detrimental? This week, Judd Trump, I think it was, fluked a green when he needed snookers. So although technically it was a success, successful pot, it did not benefit him. It's a good question, that, uh, uh, Phil. Um, I think if the ball goes in the pocket, it's it's regarded as successful. But like you say, that's only these stats are only a guide. I mean, like you say... You can pot a ball and be snookered after it. So is that successful? 
not really, but the fact he's gone in the pocket, I think, is what they look at. Safety success, Phil says, a player could play a fiendish safety leaving no pots on, but the other player flutes a pot from it. Does this count against the first player's success rate? I would say not on that case. The guys who do this in the truck, they sort of, they log it shot per shot. They don't, you don't go back sort of three shots later and think, oh, in retrospect, that wasn't successful. There's certain uh, criteria they use. Um, and uh, he says, long pot success, what is the criteria? Is it simply the distance between white and pocket regardless of the position of the object ball? And what's the distance in order for it to be classed as a long pot? I did know this, Phil. Um, it's, it's the dis- there's a certain distance one of the balls has to travel. So it's either the normally the cue ball, but it can be the object ball, um, is, is counts as a long pot. Whether it's eight, eight uh, feet or something, I'm not sure. But um, I did know that, but... Uh, it, it's gone out of my mind, frankly, and, uh, better, you know, more professional podcasts, they might have actually dug this information out before it started, but uh, it's a very busy period. It's got to be said, we're into our third tournament in a row. Paul Rogers has been good enough to send in three jokes. I've got none on my own this week, so I'll read Paul's. Um, okay, here we go. Let's roll through these. Who pays the bill at the end of the snooker referee's night out? Michaela Tab. <laughs> okay. That was quite a good one, actually. Uh, they get worse. Number two, why did the snooker table lose money at Cheltenham? Its nap ran badly. Quite a clever horse racing joke. And number three, why was Mike Tyson never any good at potting snooker balls? Answer, he kept hitting the jaws. We've done those, Paul, thank you. And uh, we'll go now to John, who writes in. John in Bishop Stortford, no less. He says... I'm really enjoying the snooker now the season's in full flow. I was stunned to watch Ricky Walden against Graham Dot when Ricky came from 3-0 down and 70 points behind requiring snookers to win 4-3. I appreciate it's only a best of seven frame match at the English Open, though I'd not seen a comeback like that before where one player is about to be whitewashed and they've ended up winning the match. Have you seen anything like that before? Um, Yes, it would be the answer. Uh, I mean, comebacks... Comebacks uh, are fascinating in snooker. Obviously, like you say, it's a short distance. So you know, three nil is not actually that much of a lead. It's like being four two up. It's not. It's not like you're eight or nine frames in front. Um, but if you look at probably the best comeback at the Crucible would be, would have to be uh, Nigel Bond against Cliff Thorburn. That was nine two to Cliff Thorburn. Um, obviously, Dennis Taylor eight nil down to Steve Davis first to eighteen. Uh, but there's been so many and uh, they can completely define careers really you look at Willie Thorne in the UK Championship final 1985 13-8 needed a blue for 14-8 against Steve Davis didn't bot it lost 16-14 etc etc but yeah it was um, you had to feel for Graham Dot there I mean he, he pulled out next week I don't know whether there's anything to do with that that sort of the pain of that defeat or not but uh, he was completely bossing the match and, and actually Ricky Walden got the snooker on the pink so he took it right down to the penultimate ball um, specifically you know your question about someone about to, com- to complete a whitewash and then lose obviously more likely to happen in shorter matches anyone's got any reminiscences on that do let us know finally this week Arthur Bonzi a regular correspondent he says as I write this we don't yet know who's going to win the English Open well spoiler alert Arthur it was Judd Trump <laughs> He said, my three quick ones will hopefully review events in Brentwood and preview Wuhan. Number one, isn't it a shame that Quest seemed to be no longer showing snooker as I no longer have Eurosport or Discovery Plus. Quest was how I watched the Home Nations events. 
a missed opportunity by Discovery? Well, Alpha, I, I'm, if I didn't say this last week, I apologise. It seems I didn't. But the, the snooker was on a channel called DMAX, which is effectively the same as Quest. It's a couple of places away from it on Freeview. So UK viewers, if you've got Freeview, which, which you will have, um, because everyone does, you can watch the snooker on DMAX um, in the same way you could on Quest. It's a, it's a Discovery-owned channel. And I think it's channel 37 or 39 or something, but it's, it's very near Quest on the, uh, on the dial, if you want to call it that. And the programming is similar. Uh, Alaskan Bush People and all that stuff was on there. Yeah, so it was on. The whole final was on, on DMAX. I, I hope, uh, you found it. It sounds like you didn't, but hopefully that'll be the case for the Northern Ireland Open as well. Second question from Alpha. In light of the withdrawals from Wuhan caused by the scheduling of Cheltenham and Brentwood back-to-back, why didn't they put Shanghai and Wuhan together or at least swap the Wuhan and British Opens around in the calendar? Well, look, the scheduling, we'll get onto this in a moment. It's not ideal, clearly, but it's also not straightforward because you're dealing with so many different variables. For example, the new Chinese events, you're having to deal with the Chinese authorities, the local authorities... You need a week that is acceptable to the host broadcaster. Now, in the case of these three tournaments, there's three different host broadcasters. There's ITV for the British Open, there's Eurosport for the English Open, and there's, I think it's CCTV in China. It'll be a Chinese company anyway in China. So they all have their own schedules and their own ideas about when they want tournaments. It's not as straightforward as just pointing to a calendar and say, we'll have this here and that there. We can all, anyone listening to this could come up with a more logical calendar to the one we have. But in the real world, there's a lot of challenges to do that. You need to get the venue, for example, not always available. Like I say, you need to work with the local authorities. You need to work with the broadcasters. So from the outside, I understand it looks sort of a bit odd maybe, but it's not as straightforward as people would have you believe, certainly on social media. Um, You know, in the real world, there are challenges to meet. And, you know, World Snooker Tour, to be fair to them, have done their best to get these tournaments on. Like I say, maybe you could you could have a midweek finish to at least, if you're going to China, at least have a few days between tournaments. Um, but it is what it is, and, and people have made their way out to Wuhan, and, and I'm sure it'll be a great week. Question three. He says, looking at this is Alpha. Looking ahead, I've read there may be further withdrawals from the Northern Ireland Open in Belfast due to some lucrative exhibitions taking place at the same time in Macau. Food for thought for world snooker. Well, you could <laughs> you could say that. Yeah, Wednesday's going to be an interesting day because. Because um, I believe Wednesday is when the draw for the Northern Ireland Open is coming out. And it seems likely there's going to be some big names missing. Possibly as much as half the top 16. We'll see when it comes out. But you're quite right. There is um, Players are taking part in exhibitions in China. Um, firstly, during the qualifiers, although that, they're, they're top 16 players. So that doesn't affect their participation in Belfast because the matches are held over. But there are also matches in Macau during the Northern Ireland Open, so clearly the people playing in that are not going to be playing in the tournament. Now, Hector Nunn's, uh, one of Stuka's leading journalists, has uh, written, <coughs> excuse me, he's written, uh, and this, I think the description is apt, a pretty explosive story, or set of stories in various newspapers this morning, about this very subject. And it's worth actually, I'm going to, on the Mail Online, so the Daily Mail, um, is one of the newspapers to carry it. I'm going to just read out a little bit of this verbatim just to 
explain what the story is. So this is the story that Hector's written. He said, Snooker's biggest stars, including Mark Selby and John Higgins, are leading a mutiny today after refusing to play Northern Ireland in favour of a money-spinning event in China. World champion Luca Brussel, Ali Carter and Thai professional Tepchar and Nu have also shunned this month's Northern Ireland Open to play in Macau. Will Snooker Tour, which oversees the sport's official competitions, have threatened them with legal action unless they play for the Alex Higgins Trophy in Belfast between October the 22nd and October the 29th. And there's a picture actually of the poster, which Ryan Day appears to be on as well, although he's uh, not been mentioned anywhere, but he's on the poster. Uh, we continue. Many of the players involved are furious over what they see as heavy-handed tactics. Part organiser Victoria She, owner of Sheffield Academy, has also been threatened with action. Selby, who has suffered badly with mental health issues in recent years, is understood to have requested he receive no further correspondence on the matter. This comes with another highly paid unofficial event featuring O'Sullivan, Judd Trump, Mark Williams, Jack Mazowski and Ding Jun Wee looming even sooner this month in Shanghai. The Shanghai exhibition takes place during the Northern Ireland Open qualifying event. Top 16 players involved could still appear at the final stages given their opening rounds are held over, but WST are also unhappy with big names playing this event, believing it will leave the qualifiers in the shade. They originally banned the players from taking part before softening their stance, and they issued similarly threatening letters to players insisting they keep all involvement in Shanghai quiet, demanding a social media and news blackout and participation in Belfast, for which only Williams is confirmed. The player power situation presents a huge challenge for the governing body going forward, with big-name stars openly, openly flouting their authority and lawyers, no doubt, licking their lips. And on and on it goes. Um, but that's the nub of the story. Basically, there's going to be an event or an exhibition in Macau during the Northern Ireland Open. And, well, listen, I can <laughs> I can totally understand why World Snooker Tour are not happy. Um, they are trying to promote the tour. And to do that, they want the best possible representation of the players at their tournaments. The Northern Ireland Open is a terrific event. The Waterfront Hall in Belfast... All the players would tell you it's one of the best venues. It's a great atmosphere there. Obviously, it's a hotbed right from the Alex Higgins, Dennis Taylor days down to Mark Allen now, who, of course, has won it the last two years, the local hero from Antrim there. So, of course, they want everybody there. It seems to me one of the sort of... Uh, one of the things that's happened going back to China that nobody, nobody sort of predicted or saw coming is actually the demand now for snooker in China, because we've not been there for four years, is so high. And so promoters want to put on exhibitions with players and they will pay them a lot of money and let's be clear these guys clearly are going to be paid a lot of money it's going to be well to, to, to earn the same money playing in Belfast you would have to go a long way in the tournament possibly even the final uh, certainly the semis maybe and that involves obviously you know getting the flight back home and all the rest of it so from the players perspective playing an exhibition obviously you know you, you want to earn ranking points and so on but there's no pressure playing in exhibitions you get looked after you get well paid it, it isn't the sort of the stress of playing in a tournament it makes sense for them personally whether it makes sense for the game overall is another matter and that's what the whole sort of row is, is about now as I say Wednesday is the day the draw is coming out so we'll see exactly who's in that tournament in Belfast but clearly those players on, who are playing in Macau are not going to be including the world champion Luca Brussel Mark Selby John Higgins so some big hitters um, it, it, the story says that you know the players have been threatened. I mean, it, it, I haven't seen any of the letters or the emails. I can't comment on that. What I would say is, if you get a legal letter, they tend to be very formal. So you know, they're not sort of 
they're not put put this way they're not sort of jokey and, and informal it, it legal letters are by their very definition just direct and straight to the point so one man's threatening is another man's formal um it's clearly not an ideal situation but i can see both sides i can see that the players feel that they're free agents they don't have to enter every tournament this is the point so they could just sit out the northern isle open sit at home but they just they've had this opportunity come along and they've decided to take it on the other hand will snooker absolutely within their rights to say well the whole game professional game that is will only be successful if it's supported by the players the nub of it really is it's it's a legal thing the players are not employees of World Snooker Tour, but they sign contracts to play on the World Snooker Tour. Now, without scrutinising the contracts, and I do not have one in front of me, I can't tell you what the exact legal position is, but it seems to me it's pretty obvious if you've entered a tournament, you should not be allowed to play an exhibition during it. But if you've not entered a tournament, surely that week you can do what you like. Um, of course what they're doing is they're playing a different snooker event in another part of the world and that's what's created the problem so I'm not sure without having sight of the, the players contract if there is any legal recourse to stop them it's not an ideal situation um, and it seems to have been caused really by the schedule because these exhibitions are taking place just before the international championship so it's an opportunity these Chinese events are now an opportunity for players not only to play in the tournaments but to do this exhibition work on the side now Will Snooker might argue well you're only going to China because we're putting big ranking events on for you to play in so that's why I guess from their perspective they don't like it their job is to promote the professional game so anything that detracts from that obviously is not in their interests and that's why I guess they're unhappy from what this, these stories tell us um, the players however I mean these letters that they've received, which again I haven't seen, players, sports people in general, and snooker players are no different. They're pretty resolute people. The more you kind of get on their back, the more they're likely to actually dig in. I mean, it's almost like we saw that with Judd Trump last night in the actual match. That's what happened. Um, so I can't see them any of them backing down. But this is something that I think if we can get the calendar in a more logical order, and I mentioned earlier that's not straightforward this is less likely to happen in the future, I would say. Uh, because you're not then zigzagging around the world from one event in Britain to one in China and thinking, is there any point coming back when I can do this other work while I'm there? Um, I don't think, maybe prove wrong, I often am, but I don't think this is going to end up in some split and some breakaway and all that. I don't think that. But clearly, because there's this demand now in China, because they've been starved of snooker for so long, clearly there is money knocking around for top players and let's be clear it will be top players doing it to to do these exhibitions and, and the temptation therefore is to say yeah rather than you know going through the stress and anxiety of a ranking event i'll earn what is for them pretty easy money doing an exhibition how it stands for the tour and the cohesion of the tour we'll see um it doesn't sound like good news for the tour that that a tournament that is now nicely established as the Northern Ireland Open is is kind of the victim in this through no fault of its own my advice to World Snooker Tour not that they necessarily need it but I'll give it anyway because in the story Hector wrote it said that they did not respond to numerous requests for comment they just sort of gave a flat response I think they should respond I think 
they should put their side and explain why they don't like the fact that players are doing this and what the ramifications are for the tour. I don't think you can complain about negative media coverage if you never answer back. I think you should answer back, not in a you know aggressive way, but just come out and explain the situation from your side. That's what Barry Hearn would have done if he was still chairman. He'd be on Talk Sport by now, <laughs> giving chapter and verse, probably in a very entertaining way. Steve Dawson, who's now chairman, who's a very good operator at Matchroom, he's been Barry's right-hand man for, for decades there, very well regarded there, but he doesn't seem to do interviews, and I think that's got to change. I think he's got to come out, and I'll, listen, I'll extend an open invitation to come on this podcast and talk about it. I'll ask him about it if he wants to, or they can do their own interview with him. But I think we need to hear from him about this because this story is going to dominate the snooker headlines for the next couple of weeks okay when, when this is not going to, this is not a passing thing when we get to belfast people will be talking about it in the run up to belfast people will be talking about it so it will be nice to hear from steve dawson about how he feels about it and how he feels it could be resolved in the future what can they do can they tighten up the players contracts maybe um, just talk to the players and explain to them why you know they feel it's a bad idea there's one obvious solution to stop it and that's to raise the prize money <laughs> now it's easy to say that you need the funds to do it but if the prize money was double in Belfast they'd be more likely to play in that tournament than do these exhibitions so it's not an ideal situation I have to say personally I don't like the idea of players doing exhibitions during an actual tournament I've got no problem with them doing them either side of it I've got no problem with players maximising their earnings however they can because sporting careers can be short in snooker they're a bit longer than other sports but you have to maximise your earnings while you're at the peak of your powers so I've got no problem with players doing that but I think it's a great shame that this really good tournament the Northern Ireland Open and it is a really good tournament um, at the Waterfront Hall in Belfast is going to suffer seemingly from a lack of star power because of players uh, going to Macau it just seems a shame and it would be nice to think that that situation could be resolved in some way. I don't think it's. I, I don't think there's any actual, real legal recourse from World Snooker's side, because exhibitions don't have to be sanctioned, um, unlike tournaments. They're going to call it the the Macau Masters, but it's not really a tournament. It's an exhibition. Um, so, not ideal. Not ideal. And it does come about in a way. It comes about through actually how successful snooker and indeed World Snooker Tour have been at getting tournaments on. We've got a lot of tournaments. And we've got these tournaments in China, but the problem is the uh, the scheduling has left a sort of situation where players are thinking, OK, well, I'm going to China anyway. I don't want to come back to Britain, so I'll cash in if I'm offered the chance. And, and you know, it, from what I understand, it's big money. So, you know, you've got to be really invested in playing in Belfast to, to just turn that down. One thing I will say is, and you know, I mean, social media is maybe not always a sort of accurate barometer of what people think. But I think I do think genuinely some credit should be given to World Snooker for actually getting these tournaments on. The Wuhan Open it's a brand new city. A lot of work will have had to have gone on behind the scenes to go to a new place. It looks a fantastic place from what we've seen of it, from what the players have been doing on their own social media. Um, so in a way. It's through snooker being successful that this other problem has come along. And as I say, I don't think anyone really saw it coming. It's just come along. This money is knocking around for players, and, and they've been tempted, and, 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 and that's it. Um, 
yeah, so we'll see Wednesday, I guess, who's in that tournament, who isn't. It's going to be. Uh, what I would say is, if you're a Q school top up, keep your phone on because you're probably going to be in the qualifiers next week, and we'll see exactly who's going to be in Belfast. It doesn't mean it can't be a great tournament, by the way, just because some of the big names are missing, because some of them will lose early anyway. But obviously, to get fans through the door and just to create that sense of excitement, you want them in it. And also, you know, as I say, we're going to end up certainly on day one there. All the talks are going to be about who's not there rather than who is. It's just inevitable. Um, so it's something of a controversy, but uh, we'll see, I guess, how it's resolved. It's a very busy time in the snooker world, and I think most people listening to this, and I count myself as one of them, is that, are actually more interested in what's happening on the table. Um, there have been some terrific snooker plays, some interesting stories and I'll be commentating for the rest of the week on Eurosport Discovery Plus on the Wuhan Open um, and the tournaments then do come thick and fast we're proud members meantime of the Sports Social Network check out the other podcasts and uh, you can email us at snookerscenepodcast.mail.com having said that this podcast is going to be taking a short break uh, for a while I feel at the moment and maybe it's because there's been so many tournaments and maybe because I've been this is now my third week uh, commentating in a row. But I feel at the moment there's a lot of noise in the snooker world. And I suppose I am contributing to that noise. And put it this way, if you turn on the TV and the person who's been watching it before you has had it turned up to full volume, the first thing you're going to do is turn it down. Um, and I think maybe sometimes it doesn't hurt to just take a bit of time to reflect and actually just do the job that you're being paid to do rather than having an opinion on everything um, and that's true of social media as well I'm not I'm not the sort of person to dramatically announce I'm leaving Twitter because nobody cares and also people who do that never leave that's the other thing <laughs> but again it doesn't hurt to take a bit of time off that as well and just sort of focus on yourself and focus on the things you enjoy doing which in my case overwhelmingly is the commentary and sometimes on the podcast Everything I've said on the podcast, I've believed at the time. But sometimes you look back and you think, actually, maybe I didn't get that right. So it doesn't hurt to to reflect now and again. Um, and, well, that's what I'll be doing uh, for the foreseeable. But anyway, we'll be back at some point. Uh, and in the meantime, I hope everyone enjoys the snooker this week. What I like about the Wuhan uh, setup there in the arena is the crowd are very close to the tables. It's a little bit like the Crucible. Quite often in the Chinese events, they're, they're sort of, you can't even see them, they're set back a long way away. But I like a crowd close. It's like the old park drive tournaments in the 70s where everyone's wearing a suit and smoking. They're right in the front row, <laughs> up close to the players. Um, so that's it for now. As I say, we're back at some point. Um, but thanks for listening. And in the words of the great Phil Yates, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.